Thanks, Melody, for, for reading the scripture for us today. I'm going to begin with a, a little story. A number of years ago, I heard uh, a speaker by the name of H. Eddie Fox. Eddie was the director of evangelism for the United Methodist Church in the United States, born and raised in Appalachia, and had just a delightful uh, accent. I, I, love, I love his accent. But he was telling a story that actually happened in 1988 uh, off the coast of Alaska. There were, in October, there were three gray whales that got stuck in the ice. And Eddie said he was watching this story on the news with great interest. And uh, what happened was there was a, there was a ship with a, a group of American scientists, and they were desperate to try and free these uh, whales before they died. There happened to be two Russian uh, icebreaker ships in the area at the time. And Eddie said he watched with great interest as the Americans and the Russians worked together to try and free these gray whales. Now, this was 1988, so it was about a year before the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, just before the end of the Cold War, before the Berlin Wall fell. And Eddie said, as I watched this story unfold on the news, he said, I said to myself, self, I think that's the first time I've seen an American flag and a Soviet flag flying on the same ship as they work together to try and free these whales. And Eddie saw this as just one of those strange and weird circumstances that caused complete enemies and strangers to come together. Uh, he also kind of ended his little story by saying uh, in his great accent, he said, well, he said, y'all know that's not the first time God used a whale. Uh, so I, I tell that little story to say God uses unusual and strange circumstances uh, to begin to do something very special. COVID-19 caused a lot of people in the church to start rethinking the way we do church. Now, we've been hearing calls to change and to do church differently for years, and a lot of people have resisted the call. But for some reason, because we couldn't meet in our church buildings, things started happening. Leaders are starting to imagine new ways of engaging with their neighbors and with their neighborhoods. People have been caused to stop and pray and to consider what is our purpose as the people of God? Todd Bolsinger wrote a very timely book and he wrote it before COVID-19 actually arrived. The book is called Canoeing the Mountains, Christian Leadership in Uncharted Territory. His book couldn't be any more relevant to our current situation. Bolsinger believes that what we need now is adaptive leadership. And let me quote from Bolsinger as he describes adaptive leadership. Adaptive leadership is called for when you are facing something you've never faced before. A term made famous by Ronald Heifetz and his colleagues at Harvard. Adaptive leadership begins the moment you find yourself without expertise and when you are truly facing the unknown. It is that daunting moment when someone is looking at you for direction and you have to take a deep breath, exhale slowly, Look into their frightened eyes and admit, I have never seen anything like this before. Right now, I really don't know what to do. 
And that's kind of the place where a lot of us found ourselves. One possible response to this phenomenon is to just throw up our hands and in resignation and say, I have no idea what to do. So we're just going to keep doing what we've always done. But many decided to change very early on and to try new ways of being church in the midst of a pandemic. And I think this is adaptive change, to realize that everything we used to do no longer works, and to have uh, the, the faith and the imagination to create a whole new path forward. The pandemic just may be a gift from God, and I don't say this lightly. It might help us make the massive paradigm shift that we need if we're going to find our purpose as the Church of Jesus Christ going forward. So many of our church ministry programs have previously concentrated almost entirely on our members, our own spiritual development. Much of the energy of pastors, deacons, elders, church boards, and committees has been so focused on the already committed. But what happens when boards, committees, and church members can't even gather together? That's when we have to reimagine ministry and realize that we could become more outwardly focused. Now, let me tell you another little story. And uh, I think Harry's on this, and he probably knows this story well. But years ago, uh, when I pastored in New Brunswick, there's a young man that grew up in the church there, and he went off to Toronto and, and became involved in ministry working in a, in a street mission in downtown Toronto. Uh, on one occasion, he was calling home, just chatting with his mom on the phone in New Brunswick, and he just, in the course of the conversation, said, Mom, what are you doing tonight? She said, oh, well, we're just getting ready to have Bible study at our home. And uh, our friends are coming, and we're going to have Bible study in our home tonight. This young man said something to his mother that night that was very jarring and turned out to be one of those serendipitous moments. He just said to his mom on the phone with a little bit of boldness, maybe a little brashness, he said, uh, Mom, you guys have been studying the Bible your whole life. Don't you think it's time you started going out into the community and serving the people and expressing the gospel in very tangible ways? Well, she was shocked and uh, I think probably a little upset at first. But, you know, she met with her, her Bible study group, shared what her son had said to her, and this suburban Bible study group, from that moment on, began to be involved in an inner city ministry that reaches out to uh, broken people, to street people, to people who have been in trouble with the law, and they have continued to this day to, to work with uh, those folks in the city. And that really leads me to the scripture uh, that was read today. Of course, Luke 15, there are three parables, uh, <laughs> the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And I'm going to just primarily focus on the first one, the lost sheep. But it's interesting that these three parables, in a way, uh, have this, the same message exactly, only it's as though the further you go into Luke 15, the more specific, the more tangible, the more uh, real, and the more, in a sense, Jesus presses in on the point that he's trying to make through these parables. It's also interesting to me, and this is a complete aside, uh, we have 100 sheep, 10 coins, and two brothers. And so the numbers keep going down. And I know some people are really into numerology and all this type of thing, but, and I'm not. But I find it interesting that the focus just keeps narrowing 
in these parables. But let me just, first of all, talk about uh, the parable of the lost sheep. As you know, the beginning of the chapter, we see what precipitates Jesus sharing these very powerful stories. Uh, the people, the, the religious crowd, are grumbling, they're upset. Uh, they don't like the fact that Jesus has allowed uh, what they would call the outcasts of society to, to come and be around him. Not only that, that he permitted them to be there with him, but that he actually entered into fellowship, uh, went into people's homes, shared at the table in meals with those who were the absolute outcasts, that those that the religious elite would have uh, absolutely no use for. Uh, let me just read those first couple of verses in Eugene Peterson's The Message. Uh, it says this, By this time, a lot of men and women of doubtful reputation were hanging around Jesus, listening intently. The Pharisees and religion scholars were not pleased, not at all pleased. They growled, he takes in sinners and eats meals with them, treating them like old friends. And their grumbling triggered this story. Notice that they were people of doubtful reputation, that not only was Jesus hanging around with them, but he was even eating in their homes and treating them like old friends. Now, I know the text says that he takes in sinners, and, and I suppose it was a specific category of people in Jesus' time. I, I don't think that it's terribly helpful for us because Jesus revealed over and over again that whether you're one of the marginalized people that he was hanging around with, or one of the religious elite, we're all sinners in our own way. But nevertheless, the grumbling triggered this story. And so he tells the story. Here's a, a story that, that people in his context would have understand quite readily. He was talking about a sheep herder. He had a small flock of about 100 sheep, but one of them is lost. And in the story, it, it just intimates that uh, the actions of the shepherd were completely justified. It says that he left the 99 sheep in the open country and went out to find that one lone lost sheep. And then it simply says in the story, Jesus says that having found the sheep with joy, he carried it home on his shoulders, threw it on his shoulders, carried it home, called all his friends together and had a party. Come rejoice with me. I have found the one sheep that was lost. And each of these parables, something is lost, something is found, and a party always ensues. To be honest, uh, this story probably further aggravated the religious crowd. Can you imagine leaving the 99 sheep unattended while going back to look for one stupid lost sheep? Now, I call this the 1% principle. Jesus advocated spending 99% of our energy and time on finding that one lost sheep. What an extravagant waste of resources. It, it happened that, that that 1% that he's referring to are the lost. They're the, they're the lonely. They're the marginalized. They're the poor. They're the broken. They're the hurting. These are the very people that the religious elite saw as outcasts, as unworthy, as irreligious. They were a total write-off. To be honest, I've been a pastor for more than 40 years, and I have witnessed firsthand how many of our churches spend 99% of their energy, time, and money taking care of the saints who are already safe in the flock. 
many of our churches spend about 1% or less of their energy, time, and money on reaching out to the marginalized and the unchurched folks. In all honesty, I think it's a misunderstanding of our mission. What is the mission of the church? The mission of the church is the mission of God. Brad Briscoe put it this way. We in the church often wrongly assume that the primary activity of God is in the church rather than recognizing that God's primary activity is in the world. And the church is God's instrument sent into the world to participate in his redemptive mission. Did you hear that? God's primary activity is in the world. I'm sure Christopher is talking about that in the lectures, and I apologize, I haven't seen the lectures yet. It has always been too often that the church misses this truth. I believe the current pandemic gives us an opportunity to, do, to just kind of do a complete reset. I'm not talking about incremental change. I wonder if we could have a paradigm shift. And now I'm going to quote Christopher. I mentioned earlier that I, I had this quote before I even realized that he was the, the guest Hayward lecturer. But Christopher Wright says, it is not so much that God has a mission for his church in the world, but that God has a church for his mission in the world. That's such an awesome statement. It's not so much that God has a mission for his church in the world, but that God has a church for his mission in the world. This is why Jesus was sent into the world. This is why he came and used so many different encounters and, and stories where he met with people in so many different situations and, and settings because he came to reach out to those who are lost. In the very beginning of John's gospel, we read these words, and this is again from the message. It, it's about the incarnation. It says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Jesus moved into the neighborhood. God was and still is at work in this world. This is why the Holy Spirit came and why in John's gospel we read this, that Jesus was sent into the world. But more than that, Jesus sends us into the world. John 20, 21 says, again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. At the beginning of his ministry, Jesus went into the synagogue and he took the scriptures. If you remember this, it, this again is in Luke's gospel. Took the scriptures and he began to read from the prophet Isaiah. And as he read these words, he proclaimed that, that he indeed was the one who was sent to fulfill this prophetic utterance. And now I've changed, I've changed it just slightly. Please forgive me. I know there are professors there. I'm not trying to plagiarize or, or uh, mess things up, but I, I've just changed the wording slightly where it says the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. He has sent me for recovery of sight to the blind. He has sent me to set the oppressed free. He has sent me to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, in case you think I'm just being hard on the church, please know, I still think it's important to take care of the 99. I know the flock needs tending. I'm a pastor at heart. But when the balance of life and ministry has skewed so strongly toward the 99, and I think that's what happened in Jesus' day too, that sometimes we need a shocking story like this to grab our attention, to change our hearts, 
to change our paradigm, to begin to get our attention to know that the real mission of God is to be sent into the neighborhood to our neighbors, to those who do not know. It might even take a pandemic to get us to shift our priorities. I say all of this knowing that we're restricted right now by physical and social distancing and all the rules we have to work with, but we don't have to wait. We can be involved in meaningful mission right now. We have more time on our hands to prayerfully consider creative ways of entering into the mission of God. We have permission to spend more time being church and less time doing church. Did you hear that? More time being church and less time doing church. Like Jesus, we too are being sent into the world to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And here's the great news. I fa- in fact, I think it's the genius of God. God sends broken, wounded people to share the love and good news of Jesus Christ to a broken world. Years ago, I I pretty much read everything that Brennan Manning wrote, but I loved the little book called The Ragamuffin Gospel. And in it, he shares a powerful story. It's actually from a Thornton Wilder play. And in the play, there's a doctor who suffers terribly from depression, and he just agonizes over this. And he's, he's in prayer and pleading with God to take the pain and the agony and the depression away from him. And for some reason... The word comes back that God has decided not to heal him of the depression. And these are the words that haunt me even to this day. When I was thinking about this message, these words came back to my mind. I read them years ago. And it simply goes like this. The very angels themselves cannot persuade the wretched and blundering children of this earth as can one human being broken on the wheels of living in love's service Only wounded soldiers can serve. God sends us wounded, broken, on the wheels of living to reach out in our neighborhoods, to our neighbors, to people who may not be like us, people that we have to to work really hard at crossing those cultural barriers and, and cultural lines. Now, There's so many ways we can be thinking beyond ourselves and beyond our own needs. I heard one little story. Lest you think this is complicated and hard, it doesn't have to be. And just, I have a recent story from one of our churches, a small church. It's not from a mega church. It's not even from one of our larger churches. It's from one of our smaller churches in the area. This fall, they decided to do a corn boil for the community, but it was going to be a drive-through corn boil. A physically distanced corn boil, which sounds a little weird, I know. And as each car drove in to the parking lot to pick up their order of corn, there was someone there taking down phone numbers and names so that they could do contact tracing in case anything happened. But I love the brilliant idea they had. As they took the name and the phone number they asked another question. They said, is there some way that we can pray for you? Do you have a need? Now, I have heard from at least two people who attended that drive-through corn boil who said that when those people asked us 
if they could pray for us, if we had any needs, two people at least said, I wanted to weep to think that someone would care enough to pray for us, to be concerned about us. That was an awesome thing. It was so small. And I know it's just a tiny way to engage the community. There are so many ways. I just wanted to encourage you with that today. So in so many small ways, we can re-examine what we're doing, how we spend our time or energy or money as churches, as Christians. We've been given this new online platform for sharing the message. We may need to rethink our language, our words, the way we present the message. We should be doing that because we've given an, we're given an awesome opportunity to engage with people who normally wouldn't even go near our churches. We have this incredible moment. I think we're at a crossroads. I want to ask you today, personally, how have you responded? How will you respond? How will you join God on mission in your neighborhood? Will you take up the 1% challenge and be willing to leave the 99 to join God in the neighborhood? God bless you.